a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Welcome to the Menopause and Cancer podcast, where we speak with cancer patients, survivors, and brilliant experts in their fields to help us find solutions to our symptoms and ideas to improve our health. My name is Danny Binnington, and I am delighted to talk to you about how you can step into the driver's seat and put cancer into the back seat, your boot, or even strap it onto the roof. I'm delighted to speak to Ria. Ria is a young cancer survivor. She's also here as an expert and she wants to share with us from her personal experience how she navigated a lesser known cancer, uterine womb cancer as a woman in her early 30s. But she's also here to share with us her professional experience and what she has learned as a leadership and health coach, as a meditation, mindfulness and yoga teacher. This is a compelling conversation. And if you want to know how you can start to take control, then you must listen to this conversation. I really hope this chat is going to impact you as much as it did me. I'm feeling not just refreshed and eager to go and explore and be curious, but I'm also sitting a little bit in the comfort that it's okay to not rare and go and do everything at once, but to also just take a pause and a moment and really ask, what do I need? Ria, it's lovely to sit here with you today. We're both in denim shirts. We're aligned, aren't we? I, I got the memo. <laughs> it's so great. Lee, Ria, we only met recently. We were both invited to a dinner party of a very special doctor. And I yeah. had the honor of sitting next to you. And I just felt oh. I wanted to talk more and more and more to you. And here we are. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Danny. Likewise, it was such a magical evening. And just all those women around the table and men and men. But yeah, it was beautiful night. Yeah, absolutely. Ria, you are a meditation and mindfulness coach. You're also a leadership coach and a health yeah. coach. And yeah. you applied most in the in the last few years much of your knowledge and expertise also into your private life yeah. tell us a little bit about your work with headspace so it's a big app i really love headspace i think everyone should tune into and listen to their apps what did you do and what was your work for headspace yeah oh uh, headspace has a very special place in my heart because it was actually one of the first apps i ever used back in 2014 when i was originally diagnosed with cancer. And then lo and behold, I ended up working for the organization in 2019. And my role there was very much working with businesses that were really curious about meditation, mindfulness, training the mind, and bringing it in almost as a benefit for their teams to help with stress, to improve focus, lots of different things that, you know, this ancient tradition can absolutely support. And, um, yeah, it was special times there, creating programs for businesses and at times being able to lead meditations in, you know, big corporate organizations. Um, and the pandemic was a real time to dig deep and do as much as we could because everything was obviously virtual and there was a huge demand for what we were offering. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone doesn't know, Headspace is a, a great app. It has so many meditations and there is so much scientific knowledge and understanding of how beneficial meditation can be, even if it's 10 minutes a day. What was that yeah. type of cancer you were diagnosed with um, before you started to work for Headspace? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with uterine cancer, which is womb cancer. And it's interesting because I'd never heard of that before. Obviously, I'd heard mm. of a womb. <laughs> um, I'd previously, my daughter at the time was two years old. So, you know, I'd gone through uh, pregnancy and everything. Uterine cancer was not something that I'd come across that term before. And um, even to this day, actually, I'll say, I'll be asked my history multiple times when I'm going through treatment and checkups and everything. And you'll have to give your kind of whole medical history. And even now I say it. And sometimes you'll have a like clinician say, sorry, what's that? Ovarian. 
no, uterine, womb cancer. Mm. And they're like, oh, all right, okay. <laughs> yeah, so much so. less unknown a cancer, much less spoken about than breast cancer, much less yeah. spoken about than other types of cancer. How did you find yeah. out you had uterine cancer? Yeah, and just on that, actually, where you said about less known, I, um, my mother had died from breast cancer, so it has always been in my life. You know, she had breast cancer. My grandmother had breast cancer three times and actually lived into her, her 90s. So I was always kind of surrounded by individuals journeying with cancer. And I was therefore very in tune with my body. And particularly when I lost my mom, I changed everything in my life because I didn't want to be, I'd seen some of the science around epigenetics and stuff, and I, I was wanting to do everything I could. So I was very in tune. And at the time I was doing a lot of running and all of a sudden my runs changed. It felt like I was dragging bricks. I started to feel really tired for no reason. And my husband and I were trying for another baby and I was starting to get bleeding after sex. So kind of putting all of those combinations together just didn't feel right. And I remember going to the doctor, to the GP, and was told that, look, you're a young mother. You're back at work now. It's a lot going on in your life. Try and find some time to de-stress. And so I was like, okay, went away and just wasn't happy. And my husband and I were in Spain on holiday. And I just literally just come out of my mouth. I just said to him, I think I've got like cervical cancer or something there's something just not right and he was like that I don't think you have but get it checked so I ended up having biopsies and um, that whole journey and was put on medication and anyway long story short when they looked at the biopsy results there was precancerous cells they went back in again about a month later and then they found some cancerous cells in my womb yeah so it's early okay. stage I have a quick favour to ask. To help the show keep growing, please click the follow button on your podcast player. It really would mean a lot to me. Thank you. And I wonder how many people um, are listening to this who are also living with the experience of other people in their lives journeying with cancer. And I think yeah. journeying with cancer is a really good description because me too, in a similar situation, um, yeah. We had so much cancer on my dad's side of the family. No woman, and they were all females, have survived. And so yeah. I grew up with, and as a, as a young adult, as a young woman, as a, as a person who was lucky enough to become a mum, all the women on my dad's side of the family didn't make it, and cancer shortened their life. Um, and so I also know what it feels like to be living around people who are journeying with cancer. It has an impact of, on you. And I always say cancer is a family affair, right? Because it can impact someone who loves a person with cancer as much as the person affected by cancer. And I know that because I've been on both sides. And I can honestly say that I felt really strong feelings and difficult feelings being with my aunties, for example, when yeah. we lost them and when they were having difficult times. So thank you for bringing that up. It's really important to acknowledge that yeah. we don't just carry and live our own journey. We live the journeys of the people around us as well, don't we? Yeah, it's so layered as an experience for everybody. Yeah. yeah. So you were a young mum to a two-year-old. You were diagnosed yeah. with early stage uh, womb cancer. What's the treatment for womb cancer? Let's talk about it because it's lesser known, yeah, as you say. It is. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. It was two weeks of absolute um, hell. It, that's what it felt like as me. And so many decisions were made in that short period of time from diagnosis to I had surgery that all happened in a space of 14 days. And I still can't even wrap my head around it that I made all those decisions. So kind of going from having all the scans you can possibly have, MRI, PET scan, CT scan, blood tests, et cetera, to then getting the date in my diary for the surgery, which was, I was um, lengthy conversations around this. So hysterectomy, 
And at the time, I was having a conversation with my consultant on what we do with my ovaries. And we were looking at, do we go down the route of saving some of my eggs? Do I keep my ovaries? And there I am looking at this little two-year-old thinking, whatever decision I make, it's so difficult because I can make the decision of removing my ovaries, which could lessen my risk of a reoccurrence. And by taking that away, that also takes the opportunity for, for her to have any siblings. And if I kept them, there could be the risk of reoccurrence and, and maybe siblings. So it was just the most gut-wrenching decision to make. Um, and I opted for total hysterectomy with my ovaries removed. Um, and that was done laparoscopically. So I remember when my mum had a hysterectomy and it was like, you know, back in those days, like she'd be just cut open and sent on her way. Um, the the mindset around it hasn't really changed that much, to be honest, as someone that had this done in 2014. So I had it laparoscopically removed. And then within 24 hours, I was back home on the sofa recovering um, and just giving some pain meds. I wasn't told about surgical menopause. Wow. Crazy. Talk about medical gaslighting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, we're going to get into all of the strategies that you've put together in supporting yourself over all of those years, because I want everyone at home listening to our conversation to learn um, from what you've done and a little bit about your journey. But let's um, talk about that moment. It's a decision you made in time. And often we look back and we think, gosh, if I just allowed myself more time or if there had been more time with hindsight, would I have decided differently or would it have just been a better process if someone maybe has given yeah. me a bit of support? There is all, yeah. all of that, isn't it? Maybe your decision would have been the same, Yeah, but there is all of that as well. So surgical menopause, no one talked to you about what that would be like if they let you go no. without your ovaries. No, no, no. Wow. So you didn't also know, right? You also didn't know, I guess, what that would be like, because I remember going through chemotherapy and my period stopping. I didn't really know that that was to do with my ovaries. I was so poorly educated on women's health in general that I just didn't clock it. I just thought side effect of chemo. And so... You must have had symptoms. Like, I yeah. can't, no, don't know anyone who wakes up from surgical menopause. So what yeah. What was it like? Uh, and, and also, like, I didn't have my mum around to ask her anything about any of this. And I just remember sitting on the chair in our lounge, and it must have been a couple of days after, and feeling like I had ants crawling all over my body. I was just like, what is this? And in the middle of the night, I would wake up absolutely drenched in sweat, like drenched is not even the right word, like absolutely like I've been in a swimming pool and I would just have it just all set on my skin and like get up and kind of sort myself out and then go back to bed again. And I was like, why is this happening? Oh, it must be something to do with the surgery or it must be because oh, I'm just so stressed. And then I met up with a friend who was a lot older than me. And she said, this, this is menopause, Ria. This is menopause. And then that was the penny drop moment for me. Like, wow, okay. And then that took me down my own path to start exploring what that meant for me of a woman that was 34 at the time. Um, and everything out there was so geared towards people like in their, I don't know, 60, 65. I mean, I, I don't want to use the term normal um, because our, everybody's bodies are different, but the kind of general information and booklets were all very much geared towards elder women than me. Um, so it was an absolute minefield. Yeah. And that is actually before the menopause 
conversation, particularly in the UK, has started to boom because over the last few years, four or five years, we had a lot of talk about the menopause. Yeah. And that doesn't always get extended to subgroups like us. And everyone of you at home listening, you are part of our little subgroup bubble. But at yeah. least there is more awareness and GPs yeah. are a little bit more clued up about talking about it. And even doctors and surgeons and oncologists are starting to change their language and maybe how yeah. they're speaking because we all know it's a big deal. Back in 2014, there was no such a thing. No, and it was almost like such a taboo yeah. to talk about it. Like, And I almost want to throw in that there was an element of shame attached to it because, and this is how I really felt at the time, like there's this, you know, me, 34-year-old woman, with this tiny little toddler and questions constantly coming at me. When are you going to have another child? You know, just people not being malicious or anything, just not knowing or um, almost suppressing how I was feeling or what I was doing because it was too uncomfortable to talk about or it was just an uncomfortable topic. And I just, yeah, back in 2014, there literally was nothing. And I remember reaching out to uh, the Macmillan team at our local hospital and they were like, well, you could join this group, but the average age of the ladies there are 67 years old. And I don't think it would be really appropriate for you um, that it's going to give you a huge amount of support in that area. So it was like, you know what, Aria, listening to you, I know these stories still exist today. Like we yeah. have women after women emailing us, reaching out that still say I've been pushed into surgical menopause after cancer and I have not had help. And people yeah. still saying, oh, my God, doctors are just prescribing tamoxifen, for example, as a little white tablet. I've never even seen an oncologist. We still know it's not we don't get the preparation, but it's better. One thing that I feel really sad about is that I haven't started my work 10 years ago. <laughs> we're now in 2024 and I know we're doing a great job. We're supporting lots of people, but it's 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we needed more support and women have been let down over and over again. Where did your inquiries lead you? What happened? How did you put your research together? Yeah, wow. Do you know, this is where um, the meditation practice that I was doing was really getting me more in tune with my body. I was more mindful of my body. And because I was becoming more aware through a very um, daily practice, I started to notice certain foods, certain drinks were not good for my symptoms in regards to menopause. So I had started drinking coffee when I had my daughter. <laughs> it helps you kind of get through the day with a with a, a very young baby and nightly feeds which I'm sure many people may be able to relate to and so I loved coffee but I realized coffee was not good for me it brought on more hot flushes it um it really impacted the anxiety that I was experiencing because that was a main one of the actual main symptoms I started to notice um certain foods were just a, like not an alcohol. Not that I drank much alcohol, but if I did, I paid the consequences that night. So my meditation practice actually revealed a lot of awareness in my body in relation to the food and drink that I was putting in. And then alongside that, I started gathering resources. Uh, Marilyn Glenville, I think that's her name, was an incredible woman that's wrote so many books on menopause. I started reading her. She had a very... Um, balanced approach in terms of Western approach, but also kind of alternative complementary. Um, and through that, I started then to experiment in the space of acupuncture, for example, which just was incredible. Um, looking at vitamins and minerals and just really opening up a world that I hadn't explored that much up until yeah. that point. Yeah, because... Sometimes when people talk about the menopause in general, they talk about it as your second spring. And it is um, called the second spring in cultures like Japan, for example. Yeah. And it's a beautiful word. I and I kind that. of get how I do love it as well. And I kind of get how 
we can't just talk about symptoms and how they're debilitating and stopping us in our tracks. There is more to it, right? Yeah. However, when it happens to you at the age of 34, because of a treatment that is there to help you survive, it is anything but a second blimming spring. <laughs> it is a shock, right? It's a shock it to your body. It floors it you. Happens immediately. Yeah. There's no gradual yeah. easing into the menopause. It is like one day you've got all the hormones in the world. The next day, gone. Yeah. And yet it's so important to tap into some of the ancient wisdom from other oh. cultures to help us put together a toolkit. Um, and that is really, really quite crucial. So I've just recently released a menopause after cancer crash course on YouTube and the podcast. And I think it's episode five or six. I talk about all of our non-hormonal complementary options like acupuncture. We have plenty of data that acupuncture and meditation is really helpful and it can totally combine medication and it can be on there on the same level as medication in terms of how helpful it is. And it's important to not discount all of that. Okay. So meditation, minerals and vitamins, looking at your diet, avoiding triggers is something I always yeah. talk about. <laughs> it doesn't cost you anything. It's no. great when it works. It works immediately, but you just have to be a bit attuned, isn't it? Acupuncture. Yeah. You, you started to do that. What else did yeah. you do? I changed my relationship with exercise. So up until that point of my diagnosis, and even shortly afterwards, a lot of my exercise had been high intensity. I was, I'm a personal trainer. So um, I was, you know, very um, aware of my body, I was running, I was doing all of those things. And my energy was different after a hysterectomy and going into menopause. And I started you know, through the, the books I was reading and the acupuncture, I was thinking all of my exercise is very yang. It's very intense. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, the burning heat of the sun. But where's the moon? There is no moon exercise in my life at the moment. And that was a real pivot for me. And that took me into um, yoga, which complemented my meditation practice. And I started practicing yoga and I noticed a real shift in every different aspect of my life, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Um, there was just this shift because I was moving my body and working with my body in ways that I don't think I ever had. Yeah. So what are people's moon practices? I really like that and there is a lot of emphasis at the moment on strength training and yeah. lifting weights which is yeah. great and I wonder if that can also be someone's moon practice so your moon yeah. practice became your yoga and you know I you know how passionate I am about yoga and I was yes, actually I I'm going to share yeah. that not because I want to show off but I was getting changed the other day and I was in my sports you know sports bright knickers and I was like holding my arms up like a bodybuilder for anyone listening at home you just have to imagine and I was looking at my triceps and I was like in the mirror saying to my husband look how strong I've become and he just looked at my back and actually said whoa have you looked at your back and I turned around and I've got a really strong back now and I thought what am I doing I'm doing my yoga, I'm consistent, and I've added one class a week where just for half an hour I use small weights. They're not even big. They're a kilo. And I don't push myself too hard. It feels manageable. I stretch a lot. We still breathe a lot. And I guess this is my moon practice. We don't have to push ourselves to the max to no. be effective, do we? No, it's Absolutely a weird thinking not. that. Yeah, like the whole... Uh, you know, training like running and HIIT training and um, like real heavy strength training where it can really overload our parasympathetic nervous system, oh, sorry, our sympathetic nervous system. Those are what I would kind of call like your yang-based exercises. It calls for a lot of energy and intensity in the body. And of course, they're all the craze and sometimes for the, all the wrong reasons, <laughs> but we won't go into that. Kind of what I think of in yin practices are things like swimming and walking and gardening and even things like housework, yoga, pilates, things that we are moving, but we're almost replenishing our energy in a different way in those exercises. And I just yeah. realized when I was like looking at the scale, I was like, I was all like up here with so much hit and intense activity. 
Um, and some of that was almost a way of punishing my body for a cancer diagnosis. And there was no kind of nourishment or looking after my body with yin, like yin type practices. Yeah. We often feel we have to be so strong, don't we, after cancer and getting back to strength and proving to ourselves that we've got it and that we're strong becomes part of that, maybe regaining some confidence, but it does leave us with our energy spent. Now, I don't feel we can talk about managing surgically onset menopause in a young woman without ever talking about hormone replacement therapy. I think it always needs to be a conversation. We need to know when is it appropriate. We also need to know the benefits of hormone replacement therapy and the risks to the individual because you have bones, you have a heart, you have a brain and you're young and that also needs helping and supporting. When you started hormone replacement therapy, how did that come about? So you had all of these other things in your toolbox yeah, and you started on HRT. So how did that happen? Yeah, so um, at that point, I'd been going on my own for six years. I had had, you know, um, my kind of sign-off, five-year remission check sign-off. And the effects of menopause were lessening. It wasn't, you know, the intensity of hot flushes and stuff wasn't happening so much. It started to um, be a lot less. However, my mental health was not great. And I had come across some books in the podcast on anxiety and panic attacks and how it was linked to people that had gone through the menopause and how HRT could really help. And it almost felt like it was the final mountain for me to overcome was my mental health because mainly of the panic attacks I was having. So I started to explore HRT. So six years down the line, spoke to some incredible people in that world. And we're now in 2020, February. I go along for an appointment. I get prescribed HRT. And I think to myself, okay, this is it. Like, I need to look after my brain. I need to reduce the impact of osteoporosis. You know, all the things that you get told, dementia, et cetera, et cetera. And I start taking HRT, pessary inserting into the vagina and patches that I wore on my leg, on my thigh. And within two months, every time I went to put the pessary in, I felt like something was pushing it back out again. And I started to get bleeding and, and reaching out to this doctor during the pandemic at this stage. I said, look, I'm bleeding. And she's like, oh, it's just because of vaginal narrowing of your vagina and um, it's very thin. Keep going, keep going. We need to get the levels up, blah, blah, blah. And then I wasn't happy. And then in uh, in July of 2020, I had an examination with a gynecologist that I knew. And she said, I think this is cancer in your vagina. Um, And that's when I had the news of a a reoccurrence. So HRT was thrown in the bin, <laughs> literally ripped off my legs in her room. And that was my very short journey with HRT. So Rhea, the cancer in your vagina, was that part of the original womb uterine cancer? No, no. It was a new cancer. It was a new cancer but I will, it's always so complex in this world of cancer, isn't it? Because there's two ways that I look at this. Either when I had surgery, there was some, and I've chatted to my oncologist about this. Either when I had surgery in 2014, there were some cells that loitered around the vagina and just stayed dormant. And the minute I put a pessary in, they thought, party time, estrogen, woohoo, and started to grow. Or that wasn't the case. And by putting HRT into my body, it created the environment for, you know, someone that had a history and also with my family uh, lineage as well, my maternal line, it was like, yep. And it created. So. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. 73% of people who listen to my podcast haven't yet clicked the follow button on their podcast player. I want these conversations to reach as many women as possible who might need it. So if you've ever enjoyed this podcast, please hit the follow button now.
Yeah. yeah. And we are going to get... Um, a really brilliant expert on the podcast in a few weeks' time who would just talk about gynecological cancers and the use of hormone replacement therapy, whether that is systemic or whether that is um, lo localized, to really educate. Because I know so many people reach out to us and say, look, there is even less data on the safety or the problems of HRT after gynecological cancers than there is after breast cancer, for example. And we know it's shockingly poor after breast cancer. And everyone is really upset that we don't actually have more data. Um, so when you were first put on HRT, was there a contraindication to the particular type of womb cancer you've had to HRT? Or do women usually get prescribed HRT after your type of womb cancer? Do you know? Do you know, it's such a interesting and complex area because after I'd had surgery in 2014, yeah. I remember my consultant reaching out to a professor at Royal Marsden and he was just of the opinion of she's very young, um, not to go on to HRT for the first year and then to work with a consultant um, on checks and balances and to make a decision at some point in the future if it was right for patient and quality of life, blah, blah, blah. Um, sadly, my consultant retired. So then I'm kind of with a new consultant that doesn't really have much of my history and as you said, like the evidence there is just so minimal. So when I'd gone mm. to this particular doctor mm. in this clinic, mm. in hindsight now, and now because I've got so much more knowledge, the questions, the, the weren't the questions that should have been asked were not asked. Mm. The yeah. internal examinations and recommending, you know, all of those things were not done. And... Mm there was an element of it almost being seen as a magic bullet and the answer to everything than looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. And I can only say that now because of where I am in my journey, but I have compassion for that person, that, that past self in 2020 that was desperate, that was, you know, having panic attacks and suicidal ideation and I did see HRT six years remission as the answer. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it is. Yeah. For a lot of people, it is because living without the hormones in a body like that is a really big ask. And unless we're really supported in those times with regular doctors visits who can really help us find an integrative approach and maybe some medication and alternative therapies. And we cannot know when we're left on our own, right? You're a very clever, very um, resourceful young person. The majority of the people I speak to aren't like you. They do not know how to advocate for themselves and go and, uh, and find out all of the data. And the lack of data there is affects all of us. It affects yeah. doctors, clinicians, researchers, patients, family members, because what do you do? And so I don't, yeah, yeah. Tell me then, tell me what happened when you were diagnosed the second time round. What was the yeah. treatment then? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. I want to hear it, though. Let's hear it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And it's it honours that kind of journey, really. Um, so, uh, summer of 2020, back into scans, back into PETs and MRIs and all sorts. And then in the November, I started chemotherapy, which I'd never had prior. I'd seen my mum go through chemotherapy, um, a couple of times when she had a couple of, um, treatments, but my experience of chemo as a daughter looking at a mother who then died, put a huge amount of fear into me and my body. Um, and I nearly didn't have it. And I really used my integrative practices and meditation to really just ask permission of my body that this is what's going to happen. And I decided that if I was going to do chemotherapy, that I had to reframe it. I had to be a foot in reality of this is a chemotherapy drug that's going into my body so I had paclitaxel and carboplatin and to keep me grounded and to give me some sense of hope I also treated it as an initial almost like an initiation ceremony 
And I started to form a relationship with the drugs. I was like, I need to not fight this drug or have resistance to this drug. I need to find a way of making friends with it. So I was having Taxol every week and I was having Carboplatin every three. Um, and I used to call, I think Taxol was because it is derived um, from a tree. So uh, from a yew tree, so Paclitaxel. So I was like, form this relationship with yew trees. And with Carboplatin, I called it the golden liquid. <laughs> and um, I was having the treatment at home in my at home because I'd had private health care, a huge privilege, I know. And I just had the medicine room. And I said, that's mummy's medicine room. That's where I have my treatment imaging. So she was homeschooling because of COVID. And um, yeah, and I had treatment for just under six months yeah. through, through the pandemic. The really, the really interesting thing here is that I know we have a lot of people sitting at home also very resistant to taking their medication yeah. or to complying to stay on medication. So we know out of everyone listening, about 70% are probably breast cancer patients just by the natural division of, of cancers. We know so many, about 70% of those are put on long-term endocrine treatment. And we know from data and statistics, but also from the people that share in our community that so many people sit on those drugs and can't get themselves to take it. The amount of people that say I've been prescribed tamoxifen, for example, and I just worry so much of what, what it's going to do to me. I, I haven't started. I was meant to start. People delaying because they haven't had doctor's appointments. It's so normal. But you were able to, you reframed it. That is quite exceptional, I think. Yeah. And it was essential. So you completed that. It was essential. It, it got was you essential through. for me. It got me through. Yeah. But you didn't stop your inquiry into what else you can do. Because when I sat next to you at dinner, we were talking about all sorts of things. We were talking about really deep breathwork practices. There was another person there who was incredible. She talked about um, psychedelic therapy for anxiety. We talked about so many things that are off the scale a little bit, aren't they? They are not even legal in this country. Yeah. But what is it that you did? So breathwork was a big part. What else? Yeah, breathwork. Um, I was really fortunate to work with an incredible medicine woman from Ecuador. Um, and I also was working really closely with my meditation teacher um, who trained in the Tibetan, Tibetan uh, Buddhist Tibetan lineage. So with them, I started to... My mindset towards the treatment was about love. What would love do? How can I bring compassion to myself? How can I bring compassion to this situation that our family are traveling through at the moment? Um, so that informed everything. So I just went on this journey of absolute inner discovery. Um, and in some ways, the pandemic allowed for me to do that deep inner work. So the breath work, um, I'd gone on some sort of retreats and workshops prior to the pandemic and continued that um, online. I, um, at the end of my chemotherapy, I decided as well to explore psychedelics. Um, and that, quite frankly, was one of the most sort of magical experiences I've ever had um, in my life. I felt so much more connected to nature. I mean, I had prior, I was doing a lot of walks in the fields, but this was just a whole nother level of connection. Um, and just continued, you kind of think that you've got to a phase where you know enough and then like this other layer opens up. And then, of course, like you just keep on going. Um, and again, through that, it was going deeper into meditation uh, meditation is often seen as like this one thing that you do via an app, but there are so many different approaches and teachings and techniques. Uh, so I deepened my practice there and I started doing a lot of work in with um, IFS, internal family systems, where you um, very much are forming this relationship with all the parts within you, the voices the inner critic it may be or um, like this voice that shows up to protect you but can be um, a pain in the ass at times so I started to do a lot of that with an incredible therapist 
and I started to train in as a systemic constellations practitioner. And, and all of that going into that field just helped to change everything for me personally. Wow. And so healing is so multifaceted and it means so many different things to some people, right? And some yeah. people just want to look at research paper and talk about every single percentage of benefit and risk and calculation and drugs and compounds and ingredients. And it's very technical. And for some people, and what I'm hearing from you, your healing took you off uh, to worlds that were unexplored by you before, right? They had nothing to do with how you eat and maybe how you move or what type of exercise or whether you add another vitamin. Your healing became something bigger in a way, right? Yeah, deeply spiritual and finding that sense of agency because when anybody gets a cancer diagnosis, straight away you're labelled a patient straight away the sense of agency confidence empowerment can be taken away from you just the nature of being in that system and you can almost feel a, like a, a victim to your diagnosis and I certainly spent many many years in that in that space so I think ultimately what I was doing and have been doing since 2020 is reclaiming all the pieces of me that I'd scattered and thrown and suppressed and forgot about reclaiming all those parts of me and having this sense of agency again and empowerment that I had at times outsourced to other people. And that's not to say that going to other people is the wrong thing to do. Absolutely not. It's the intention behind it. So, yeah. for example, am I going to put my head in the sand and 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 completely understand when people do do that? Um, and I have done that myself. And almost get someone to make the own, all my decisions for me. Totally get it. For me and the experience that I've gone through, I had to reclaim and be the one that sat in the driver's seat on this journey and not to be the passenger anymore because I was sick of being the passenger. Yeah. And for anyone listening at home who also feels gosh, cancer happened to me, because of course it does. No one wants it, no one invites it. And then treatment happened to us because initially that's really what happens for most yeah. people. We embark on cancer treatment and everything is quite quick. And even if you have two months between from diagnosis to start of treatment, it's quick, like in the yeah. grand scheme of a life, it's quick and we all process things differently. So things happen to us initially. If someone is a few months on or a few years on and still feels like it's all kind of happening to them, how do you think as a health coach, um, as a leadership coach, what could a step B for someone to step into the driver's seat? What could some actionable points be? Yeah, that's such a great question, Danny. Do you know, the first thing is, that, as you were saying that, and I can relate this to my own journey, is it's happening. It's constant, isn't it? It's go, 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 go. You're always on the go. Stop. Just stop. Just pause. Gather people around you that you absolutely trust with every single fibre of your body. And that gathering doesn't need to necessarily be a physical gathering, but just know who is on your team and keep it small to begin with. And just pause and stop and think about the question, the answer to this question, which is what do I need right now? And listen. And keep asking that question and keep listening for that answer until there's something deep within you that just knows. Because it is there. And when you get that, that then enables you to start moving into the driver's seat and kick in cancer to the back seat or to the boot of the car. Or if you want, <laughs> stick it on the roof. I love that. On the roof rack. I love that. <laughs> Love it. It is so good to hear your words because when I speak to people, for example, that are interested in joining our Empowered Menopause program, the answers they want, the, the, the questions they want answers for when they first come are always very much ahead into the future. 
Danny, what should I do if X, Y, and Z happens and I need to figure out and can you help us very far in the future? But when I then assemble a group of 10 women, for example, and we embark on, say, four months of working together and having regular Zoom calls, by the end of our time together, the questions they first came into the group with are no longer existent in eight out of 10 people because something has changed that we didn't even know. And so whatever the big question was, often is irrelevant. So we can only ask, what do I need now? Because of course, the mind wants totality. The mind wants answers. My mind only wanted to get me to, in five years time, I can then do this. My husband kept saying, but we've got to go on holiday until then. You can't wait for five years to ever book a holiday again because you're so scared. <laughs> and I was like, so glad he booked the holidays for us because I would have been unable constantly thinking, what if something goes wrong whilst we're away, for example. But in the moment, I also knew what did I need? And that was making memories with my family. And as you were explaining, the person I trusted the most was my husband, is my husband going through. And I allowed him to take over and make some decisions. So whatever you just said resonates so deeply with me from a professional level of having coached so many people, but also from a personal level. And I think sometimes it's good to disconnect, to stop, isn't it? Disconnect from social media because it's trying to give you answers. Yeah. Find well, answers to your solution. Yeah. Disconnect from all of the noises and sounds and opinions and just ask, what do I need? Just today, maybe. Just today. Yeah. Now, there's so much wisdom in our bodies. There really is. And just that opportunity to start to realize that you have all the answers right now to all the questions that you have. And as you said, the mind, absolutely, it is so good and it is been so conditioned in our lifetimes to ping pong between past and future, keep going back and forth, back and forth. And the more we learn to train it to be here right now, that's where we can start to explore what we need um, or how we feel about a particular moment. Yeah. So after all these things you have explored, what's next for you? Is there something you're still curious about from this big wild world of how do we call it? Alternative um, <laughs> therapies or complementary therapies? Like what's next? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> honestly, I am such a seeker and such a curious individual by my very nature. Um, I love exploring and pushing boundaries and being perhaps a pain in the ass sometimes. So what's next for me? I want to continue exploring the realms of psychedelic medicine. Um, you know, the studies that University College of London are doing, what's happening in Australia, who have legalized it now for um, patients with mental health conditions um, in America as well, in various states. So definitely uh, that space. And also I'm really fascinated in how AI is going to start to change the landscape of cancer be it the um, research, cancer research, like we know that AI can just do so much more than one human being. So the partnership between a human and an AI that can get through thousands of data points, I think will be really fascinating to see what happens in that space um, and how it potentially can come up with more tailored personal treatments for people. Um, so I'm keeping a, a watch on the world of AI and how it integrates into healthcare ethically. That is fascinating. Wow. Will mm. you come back and report back on <laughs> your, personal your personal journey of inquiry, which I think is fascinating, but also on what happens with the AI side of things? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people at home now thinking, oh my gosh, yeah, what AI has such a big impact. How will it impact all of us? Yeah. Hopefully for the better. Um, Gosh, Ria, I know that there is a lot more to your story, so many more things to unpick. Um, <laughs> time maybe for another conversation. I think this has been such a great starting point for many people who want to get into the driver's seat. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your personal story, but also really allowing us to tap into your coach brain, um, <laughs> your practical you know brain as a coach it's really quite amazing um 
I can't wait to hopefully sit next to you over a big bowl of food again like we did the oh, other day because yeah. that was fabulous. It really was. We should do that, Danny. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to to talk and share and yeah, just contribute to much needed resources in this space. And what you're doing with this podcast is just absolutely amazing. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, it wouldn't happen without all of you amazing survivors, but also experts that are here to share their time freely with us. And really, everyone always really wants to do really well. Every expert, every survivor, everyone really takes their job at sharing their stories, their expertise, you know, with a lot of care and integrity. And I think that's what's so lovely. No one is here to sell anyone anything or to to try and make any think better for themselves everyone's really there for a really honorable reason so thank you yeah thanks danny gosh isn't ria amazing i'm so grateful that we were all able to listen to her did you know there are over twenty thousand of us that listen to our conversations every single month and i don't take my work lately i'm really feeling all of you out there and I know you've all had a really tough time otherwise you wouldn't have to be here and listen to our conversations and I want to acknowledge that really I should acknowledge it every single week I show up here because I truly try and zone in to each one of your experiences I also know that we're also vastly different and we've all got so many different life experiences different backgrounds that are going to shape shape us and also change and shape our decision-making process. And so our opinions will differ. But that to me has never mattered. You might have a really different take on something and I might have a totally different opinion. It really doesn't matter. We have so much shared experience and I feel so much compassion towards and for one another that having different opinions is totally okay. One thing that is true for most of us navigating this and for most people actually is that Self-criticism is a part of most people's lives. Self-criticism comes in uninvited. It chips in. It chips away. It keeps asking, have you done enough? Are you good enough? Have you worked hard enough? Maybe you didn't do your research. Self-criticism comes in all the time. Self-compassion, on the other hand, needs to be invited. And like reassess, we need to take a pause and a moment to really invite self-compassion in. Self-compassion is going to ask us, what do you need? And so we have a choice to either be a little bit unaware and let self-criticism chip away and tap away, or if we start to invite self-compassion in, maybe once a week, maybe once a day, and every now and then we can be curious and ask, what is it you actually truly need? That to me was such an amazing and a really, really good reminder that I really hope it also helps you get back into that driver's seat, put cancer onto the back seat. I'm so grateful we chatted to Ria. If I'm asking my true self-compassion, what do I need now? Then I can tell you and share with you that my tummy is rumbling and that I'm going to spend three minutes in preparing myself a really delicious, balanced snack plate, something I do almost every week. And yeah, after after that, I shall be ready to carry on with my day. But for now, I know I need a little pause and a moment to be still. And I hope that is also a reminder for you to take that moment in your busy days and your busy lives as well. See you next week. 